chapter 3. Now, it's my intent to finish up this sequential preaching of the epistles of Peter this morning. And usually I do some review uh, each week of what we previously learned um, to set the stage for the current message. But today I want to do something a little different, and we're going to jump right into the last chapter of Peter's epistles. And then I would like to finish with a recap or a synopsis of what we learned over the past several weeks. So let's first uh, start with a word of prayer. Father, the Apostle Peter, chosen of you before he was even born. And Lord, we're learning a lot about him and his writings and what that means to us, Lord God. I just pray that today's message will have deep meaning to, to each of us in some sort of way. When you sequentially preach, there's not necessarily a central message, but many messages. It would be hard to come out and to say exactly what was preached, except for what we preached on concerning the books of Peter. But Lord, may you speak to us today. Um, it would be a shame for us not to hear your voice and a shame not to follow what we should do and your promptings of the Holy Spirit. So Father, we just pray that uh, your word would go forth and do its job and your Holy Spirit be present. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and following in verse 2, it says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us apostles of the Lord and Savior. See, Peter, again, spends time, it's important, authenticating the Word of God here. He gives the two requirements of authentication. The holy prophets of old, who did what? Who prophesied, we're learning here, of Jesus Christ and the words of Christ's apostles. These two witnesses agree with each other. The early church made sure that they agreed with the, the Old Testament the prophets of old. And neither, neither one of these witnesses will ever change, and they never fail. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember them which have the rule over you, and who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today, and forever, and be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. The message of God never changes. The farther along we get, the clearer it may become. There's things in the early church they don't see like we see. It becomes clearer and clearer as the day approaches, but it doesn't change. It doesn't flip-flop. It's Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
When you hear something and you ought to just, the warning sounds ought to go off when, oh, this is some new thought, some new doctrine. No, it's, it's not new. It may be clearer. That's fine. And it should become clearer to us as we move along. We see more and more. There's still things cloudy to us. I'll tell you, I struggle with understanding what heaven is. I, I try to explain. But, you know, how did the, the church try to explain what this thing that was going to come called the Bible, the completed word of God, they just knew they just prophesied it. It was coming. They really know. But we've got to be careful when something else is, is preached. And, and just to give you some thoughts, when I hear something that, ah, you know, and it can come from a preacher that I admire and whatever, I'll go and talk to other people and say, hey, listen, this, this is this doctrine that I'm hearing over here. Have you heard of that before? Is this common? Somebody who's been involved in the ministry much longer than I have. And I check those things out. Because one thing is, it's not going to, there's nothing new, okay? Clear, yes, but newer, new, and, and that's what you're going to find uh, with the cults. Jesus in his last days before going to the cross makes this statement. I have many things yet to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now, howbeit when he... The spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All the things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. God gave everything to the Son. The Son gave it all to the Spirit. The Spirit of God gives it unto us. Salvation is by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. I once had a fellow Christian challenge whether anyone can be saved outside of the verbal preaching of the Word of God. He was questioning the use of tracts. He cited the scripture in Romans 10, uh, 12. It says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach? except they be sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. The word preacher, the word here in the Greek, is keruso. Um, it means to herald, especially divine truth, a preacher or proclaim or publish. Proclaiming and publishing the gospel is it limited to verbal words? I think not. Could somebody pick up a Bible and the Holy Spirit convict them and they trust Christ as their Savior? Sure they can. Can a track or a Bible be created without the spirit of preaching, the motivation to publish God's word to win people to the Lord? 
And besides one exception for people who are after money. Peter talks about those. It's hard to imagine that something printed of the gospel of Christ be not motivated by the preach of a preacher. By the way, we are all to proclaim the gospel. In the general use of the term, we are all preachers. The word of God can't fail. We're, listen to what Brother Mike is. God's using him to help us understand some, some things of who God is. He can't fail. The Holy Spirit can't fail, who is God. But preachers fail. I want you to imagine trying to get a nut off of a bolt. Okay, this may be more for the men's side, but I'm sure maybe the ladies have tried to get a, a nut off of a screw or something at some point. You know, some preachers are like a fine snap-on tool. You take it out of the snap-on toolbox, it perfectly fits on the nut, it perfectly fits your grips, a mild force in the right direction, and voila, the nut breaks loose. Then you wipe off the tool with a rag and put it back in its place. Now, mo most of us don't know anything about that. <laughs> if we have a snap-on tool, well, it's, it, it's probably thrown in the top of something somewhere. Now, other preachers are like socket wrenches, channel locks, pliers, pipe wrenches, or vice grips. I have even been known to use a screwdriver and a hammer to get a nut off. Now, I know what you're thinking. Now, you say, there you have it, Pastor Tim. Your preaching reminds me of a screwdriver and a hammer. But before you go too long thinking about that, maybe you're the hard nut that hard to crack loose. Here's the thing. The tool is really not what gets the nut off. It is the force and the proper direction of that force that gets the nut off. God is the force, the power of his word. The Holy Spirit is the direction of the force. The tool is simply God's ordained tool. The foolishness of preaching, of all things. Sometimes these preaching tools get dirty, rusty, or hard to find sometimes. They've even been known to push in the wrong direction. You ever start wrenching on a bolt and realize you just you turn it in the wrong direction? But when we are clean and we are in step with God's word and his spirit, mighty things can be done. Now Peter warns us of those who will try and lead us away from God's word and on the leading of his spirit. Verse 3 of our text gives us his caution. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. There's an interesting thing. Brother Mike, as he was teaching this morning, and he's teaching about the Holy Spirit. And, or the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I just don't have a problem with it. <laughs> you know? But you're finding out there in the world they're making 
all sorts of things around this that are leading you away from, from God. And it's, it's not only that. You know, did, did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale? Hey, you know, I just don't have any problems with that. I mean, the God I see, I mean, can, can do anything. Open the Red Sea, there's been great controversy. You know, that had to be shallow waters, and there was this wind that came through, and this is how this all happened. I don't know, you know. To me, I don't know, for me, it just, one of the other things, I just don't even understand. How do people question that Jesus didn't claim he was God? I, I mean, look at the Bible. It's, it's, it's all over in it. And yet there are people who are doing this, and, and, and we need to be talking about these things? That is so interesting to me. It's interesting because people claim something so untrue and state it like it's a fact. Is not that the mantra of our world today? I mean, they get something up and all the experts come up and tell you what's going on and how this is working and how that's working and, and they don't know what in the world they're talking about. Peter gives us the answers of what they are denying and how they deny it. Verse 5 of our text it says for this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water what is the rub with these people God is the rub there will be no God it's not going away folks <laughs> we're not going to preach it away it's not that's not going to happen. It's going to be here. You just need to understand how to deal with it. We've been going over some apologetics material close to home. And it's so amazing that when the anti-God crowd will use insignificant, inconsistent, and fallible evidence to claim their godless theories, yet when there is strong, consistent evidence of biblical accuracy, they discount it as any proof of the accuracy of the Bible. They just flout out say, well, that's just not true. I forget what it was, the poem of Hierapolis or something, talking about the plagues and this, and it, and it is so exactly like the plagues and of the time of when that would happen. And this, the godless guy, it, it just, that isn't it. He was doing this and that, you know. Just throwing it away. <laughs> Just like the Lord said that the poor you will always have. You know, if you think we're going to get rid of the poor, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. It's just an unchangeable fact of life on this earth that there's going to be people who are gainsayers and who are going to say crazy things and you're going to get people to believe it. Verse 6, it says, whereby the world that was then being overflowed with water perished. They deny the flood. You know, that's one thing I really appreciate about that ark down there. It says there was a flood. <laughs> there was a flood. But the heavens and earth, verse 7, which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. 
we see here the next plight of this earth is coming. This earth will be burned by fire at the end of time. It's coming. But how long? Verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We use this verse a lot. It's a common verse we use to explain many things as to God's timing in general, and I think rightfully so. It does apply in general. But we see it in the context of Peter's writing in the time before the earth and elements will burn up in fire. It's interesting that the burning up of this world, as we see in the book of Revelation, will take place after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, which will take place after the rapture and after the tribulation period, which is still yet to come. The time of the tribulation and the millennial reign of Christ and what happens afterward is also referred to as the day of the Lord. If you want to think about the day of the Lord, like right now, when Jesus came here, he didn't take over. The day of the Lord, when he raptures his church, <laughs> and the tribulation comes, and he will reign on this earth for a thousand years, that's his day. It's the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is a thousand years, a millennial reign, a thousand years. So kind of think of that, in the, we could kind of look at that in context here of that statement. Now, verse... 9. Peter gives some amazing words about the Lord and his timing of his final days. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness, but his long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We need to dwell on this verse a little bit. We use it pretty quickly. But think of what this is saying. Occasionally I run across someone who is in a place of authority who is amazing at showing mercy or is pretty long-suffering. When I see it, I have one of two responses. <laughs> in the flesh, I think, he should have fired that guy years ago. But when I, through the Spirit, see a supervisor who sees beyond the employee to see his family, a wife and children at stake, and tries every way he can keep from devastating the family from a father's loss of job, due to his own negligence. One who would show great mercy and long-suffering. In the spirit, I'm humbled. And I've seen that. Personally. God, if we should dwell on it, if we would seek to find the depths of the mercy of God and his long-suffering, it's beyond our human comprehension. It would humble us and bring us closer to God and a more loving relationship with others. It keeps us from being judgmental. We have the tendency as humans to be judgmental. God warns us not to judge lest we fall under the same judgment. Part of finding God's heart is an understanding of His great mercy and His long-suffering. Verse 9 of our text tells us God's patience in judgment. He is long-suffering to the lost. Mankind, we might say he's slacking, you know. Uh, it says as men count slackness. You know, God, you need to just get this, why didn't God get this thing done? The world's getting worse. 
Now he should take care of business. God sees past the judgment. He sees lost souls. And he wants to give every bit of time in his grand knowledge and of his excellence to take as much time as possibly he can to see anybody get saved. I like how someone described the rapture timing. He said, I think the last person to be saved before the rapture has been born. In other words, he's saying time's come. Feels like the time is coming short. But you start thinking about that statement. It's kind of interesting to think. When Christ comes back to rapture his church, the Holy Spirit and the hearts of the saved will be removed with him. There's going to be a last, and we want to think about that a little bit. It ought to cause us to move. Verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord, in our text, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. You know, I have had a thought about this. It says it'll pass away, <clears throat> you may miss this, with a great noise. Big bang theory right there, buddy. And talk about global warming. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are in shall be burned up. So I guess I'm kind of a believer in those two in this sort of way. Jesus did not come to this earth to save the earth. There's no salvation or renovation of this earth that's going to happen. It's going to be destroyed. It's dirty, miserable, nasty. And God, once he's done with it, it's going to be destroyed. God will provide a perfect and pure new earth that will have no blemish of sin in it. Revelation 21.1, and I saw a new heaven. Think about these. Peter's wanting us to think about these things. It's important to him. He, he's telling us that there's a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. Neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write. Listen, for these words are true and faithful. This is going to happen. You can count on it. You believe it. You rest your life upon it. You keep your eyes upon it. Verse 11 and 12 of our text. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holiness and all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Big question mark. Answer this question. How should you ought to be knowing these things? 
You know the future. You can count on it. It's something you need to ask yourself. It's kind of like the open-ended question from a Bible study lesson. You know, we have those. Well, how do you feel? How, do you, how should you think about this, given this information? Verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new, for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Man, it's got, let these verses sink into you. There's a perfect thing. I can't explain it. I, it's just way up here, but there's going to be a place of no sin, a, a perfect place, a perfect righteousness that we're going to be in. And again, Peter is, again, a recurring theme. Live your life with the end in mind. Verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent. There's that word again. He's been using that a lot. Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now, I don't know if this is altogether uh, correct, but these are just some thoughts I had about those words, diligent. I don't think there's any question about this. Diligence means you make some effort. You, you need to make effort in your Christian life. And it says, in peace. I just wrote secure in God. To be insecure is a spirit of disbelief of God. If we know all these things, he's got everything taken care of, we should be found in peace. Are you in peace or are you disruptive today? We should be in peace. And it says without spot. I wrote down, clean before God, sins confessed, all put under the blood. Up to date, clean before God without spot. And then blameless, clean before men, upright, good. Verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, here's Paul is brought up in Peter's writings, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. He is identifying and authenticating Paul's message. You could trust Paul. Peter attaches himself with Paul's writings and a few final warnings. It says in verse 16, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and here's the verse we use. In which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Peter is admonishing us to learn Folks, and we need to do this here. This has fallen away from the church. For you personally, you need to have some umph to want to know and to grab a hold of God and understand His Word, to grab a hold of His Holy Spirit and have Him guide you into all truth and know it. Because we need to recognize error because we can fall away. Even the apostles, Paul said this, 
Know ye not that which ye run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it unto subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now before we go to our final verse, I want to briefly recap the whole of the epistles of Peter's before we read the last verse. Now I've mentioned this before, I kind of see Peter's life in three, three sections. His, his first section, at his first meeting with Jesus, he's given a nickname Cephas, meaning a stone. After Jesus performs the miracle of fishes, by the way, uh, I, I, they were so humbled by this, the boat began to sink. They call another boat. Two boats are sinking with fish. This is just, it's, there's nothing ever happened like this. They forsake everything and follow Jesus this time. He learns many things from Jesus and his ways. They're given power, Peter and, and, and others, to perform miracles by the power given him by Jesus. I mean, they were, they were doing miracles, man. This is, whoa. He walks on water, Peter does. He pulls a coin out of a fish's mouth in obedience to the prophecy of, of Jesus saying that that's what would happen. He sees Jesus perform many miracles. He sees Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. He sees Moses and Elias. And here's the voice of God confirming Jesus as the Son of God. There's another one of deity. There's a big one right there. But then comes the second part. Just after he is called blessed by Jesus because he proclaims that Jesus is the Son of God, right after that, he hears Jesus call him Satan because of his words that deny Jesus going to the cross. Peter understands, under-responds, and then over-responds to Jesus washing his feet. <laughs> he is told by Jesus that Satan wishes to sift him as wheat, but when converted to strengthen the brethren, he claims he would never leave Jesus, but he is told he'll deny him three times before the morning, before the cock crow. Peter, at the time of Jesus' passion of prayer, right before the crucifixion, he falls asleep at least two times, potentially three times. <laughs> when they come to get him, the high priest is there. Peter cuts off the high servant's of the high priest's servant's ear and is rebuked by Jesus. <laughs> I'll tell you, bam, 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 bam. Peter does forsake Jesus and denies him three times, and at the last denial, the cock crowing, Jesus looks him in the eye and he begins to weep bitterly. His life had to feel like it was done. Jesus is resurrected, his body's removed from the tomb, but Peter still, he goes in, is unbelieving. And he's still fearful of the Jews. But let's look at the third part of his life. 
It's kind of like build up, tore down, rebuilt. Jesus meets Peter after the resurrection is converted and to be a strength to the brethren. Peter sees Jesus on three separate occasions before Jesus' final ascension. The last time on a fishing trip where Jesus tells him and other disciples to cast the net on the right side. Jesus challenges Peter on his love for him three repetitive times. Jesus tells Peter that if he loves him to feed his lambs and to feed his sheep three times. He's told how he's going to die in that meeting. Peter takes the lead at the day of Pentecost and by the power of the Holy Spirit preaches. 3,000 are saved. Again, 5,000 are saved through his preaching. His life is a series of preaching and persecution, suffering, victory. Peter, a devout Jew, is taught that salvation is to the Jew and to the Gentile, and there is no difference to God. So what does Peter, given this life, say to us near to his death in his epistles? In essence, Peter, a prominent apostle, is only given a small amount of scripture in the New Testament. You would think he would write half of it. What he has to say is quite repetitive and on point. The main theme is suffering. Kind of makes sense. This is his last days that he's writing this. That suffering is a part of the Christian life and it is good. It follows the Savior. <clears throat> Our Savior suffered and so shall we. It brings us closer, <clears throat> excuse me, closer fellowship with Jesus and it produces the power to the saving of souls and the edification of the church. But the telltale sign of suffering righteously is that the end is the glory, honor, and praise to God. The main point driven by Peter, though, is the difference he puts between the old man. He hammers, 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 hammers this and the new man. And to put off the old man and to live as the new man unto Christ and unto his word. We are a new creature designed to give glory to God. We are to be separated away from the world and associated with the things of God, which is called holy living, folks. We are to live soberly and upright. Soberly. From a military standpoint, or maybe some others, I know Tim, when in the police force, there's a term they use called squared away. Squared away means get away from all that foolish junk. Get squared away, get right, get soberly. Peter calls us to remembrance of Christ and his suffering for us, of his body, his blood given for us, his resurrection and our resurrection that will follow because he made the way we will be resurrected. Christ, to be our example of how we live, we are to live in the power of his resurrection by the guidance of his Holy Spirit that indwells us. Peter describes an unsearchable God, knowing all things, with all things in control, and of great mercy and long-suffering. We are to be found in peace of such a wonderful God. We should be found in peace. We are to live with the end in mind. What is promised and lays ahead to run, keeping our eyes on the finish line, 
We are not to pay attention to the woes and circumstances, but we are to do the amazing. We are to walk on water like Peter did, keeping our eyes on the Savior. We are to live in the fear of God. A judgment is coming too. And we should have a certain fear about that, that our lives are going to be judged. We are to know that there's nothing eternal about this earth and its offers of pleasure, that it will be destroyed forever. We are to put our sights on the eternal. We will face opposition, he says. There will be false teachers, an environment that comes with the Christian life that's not going away. Therefore, we are to exercise diligence in our Christian life. We are to gain the knowledge of Jesus through his, the word of truth. We are to gain understanding of it as well. We never fight the devil, but rather resist him and let the Lord fight for us. We are to gird, arm, and train our minds. Diligence. Church, this isn't this little thing here, man. We need to get serious about it. We are to live in love with the people of God, binding together in unity of truth, bound to love and taking care of one another in the church. We are to be submissive to our authorities, he tells us, in our walk, to walk honestly in this world. We are not to be found suffering for doing wrong. Let it not be once named among us but rather suffering for doing right. Great emphasis is put on our tongue, our lips, and our conversations. We are to refrain from gossip. A little book, it's packed and it's pointed. Now we're ready to read the last words of Peter's epistles. And this verse describes everything he says, everything he previously said, in the most brief, concise way. And now I hope this verse, which we use a lot, will have much greater meaning than it ever has been before, knowing the full of what is all packed behind in this meaning. Verse 18. But growing grace... And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him, to Him, be glory now and forever. Amen. This is His last words. It's really the synopsis of everything. That's what growing in grace is. Read all of First and Second Peter. He's telling you how, this is what growing in grace is. You live for him, and you seek for his glorification. With heads bowed and eyes closed, pianists are coming to play. I want to tell you something here. Now, Peter is addressing the persecuted church at that time. We're not a persecuted church. But for today, may we apply it to a church that is falling into complacency, to comfortability, to lukewarmness. That's our battle, folks. We cannot allow that to happen. We need to get hot for the Lord. Revelation 3.15, I know thy works. 
that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest I am rich, and boy are we rich today. You know, I think about it. The promised land. The land flowing with electric cars and big houses. No, milk and honey. Simple basic needs. That's what that was. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. Gold tried in a fire. And white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. <clears throat> and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyes, saith, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous thou for and repent. And here's a verse that we misuse a lot because he's talking to his church here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Will you open the door today? Jesus is knocking at your door on something. And maybe you don't even know what it is. Just cry out to the Lord. He knows. Hear my humble cry. Thank you all for your attention. I pray, been praying that the Lord would just speak to your hearts today. Do a mighty work. Change your life. You could be moving and, and going. We can't afford to just, just stay where we're at. That's a bad spot. Bad spot. We don't have persecution. Maybe that's what we need. And I, I, that's a terrible thing to say. I mean, we, we should seek peace, and it's great. But we'd be better off rather than staying where we're at and doing the same old, same old, we'd be better off with persecution that pushes us into making a decision for him. Gold tried in the fire. Father, thank you for all those who've come, Lord. Again, I just uh, pray that you've spoken to hearts today, that they've responded the way you want them to respond, and your blessings upon them. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.